Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Emily Brooke invented a laser light that makes night cycling safer for urban cyclists. The safety feature has been adopted by the transport authorities in London and New York and earned her a special honour in the Queen's birthday list this year. Here's the story of her company, Blaze. I started cycling about six years ago. I decided to cycle the length of the UK for charity and learnt to ride a bicycle to do that. During that ride, I fell in love with cycling. I fell in love with being on a bike. I spent the summer in the country roads, which was relaxing and wonderful and and peaceful and happy. But the cities that we went through were stressful and dangerous and exhausting. And the week that that ride finished was the week my final year of product design started at university. And I gave myself the theme, Urban Cycling. And I wanted to find the biggest challenge for city cyclists. I didn't really care if it was getting wet or your bike nicked or whatever it was, but it was very important to me had to be the biggest problem. And safety is the biggest problem. So this was sort of part of your degree course? Exactly. I started off at Oxford reading physics and I dropped out to go and do product design in Brighton, which was bizarrely a lot more fun. (laughs) I worked with a driving psychologist in Sussex who analysed accidents for a living, which is slightly depressing, but fascinating and the bus company, and a lot of deep diving into the statistics of which accidents most commonly happen and why. And after quite some time, after a few months, there was one stat that amazed me and still does today, and that is 79% of cyclists that are involved in an accident are travelling straight ahead and somebody else turns into them. So the one that we all know, which is the blind spot, a bike goes straight ahead and a vehicle just in front turns across their path. And the second most common is the bike is going straight ahead and a vehicle pulls out of a junction just in front. Our first product is the laser light, which is a front light that you have to have by law, but it also projects the symbol of a bike onto the ground in front of you. So about 20 feet in front of you on the road, a symbol of a bicycle travels in front of you and alerts drivers ahead that you're coming. Because I realised in those situations, you as a cyclist can often see the threat. It's in front of you, but they can't see you. So anything to give them a heads up and to alert them that you're coming. What made you think this idea could be a business? As soon as I had the idea, I knew it was valuable. I knew it was you know, crazy, but it was a very good idea and it needed to be a reality. You were just out of university at Brighton. What was it like in the early days getting the business started? I had the idea at university. I patented it at university, for which I've since been rather grateful. But I thought I could license it to somebody who knew how to manufacture or grow a business. And I that summer got accepted to Entrepreneur First, which is an accelerator in London. And I was in the very first cohort that they ran. And they accepted me because of Blaze, because of my university project and to where I'd got it. But they wanted me really to be building a tech business. So I spent the summer learning to code and tried to park Blaze but was forever letting my co-founder down and and them down for going for meetings about Blaze and meeting designers and lawyers and trying to get the idea a little bit further forward. I just couldn't leave it alone. 
And then later that summer, I came out of class late at night and I realised that my bike had just been nicked, which was the bike I'd done that long ride for charity on, which just completely broke my heart. And I went to the police station, I got home quite late and I um, I went online when I eventually got home and saw that a man had just been killed by an Olympic bus turning across him. So it's the summer of 2012. And I had this literal slap in the face of, you know, what are you doing? Look at you, look upset you are. This is what you should be doing. This is what you care about. You designed a product that potentially could have tackled this exact problem. You know, why aren't you doing it? What did Entrepreneur First say then when you They still supported that? me, which is amazing, because one of their USPs is they form teams on the course. And I, at this point, was now a single founder with an idea that was hardware, which I was slightly nervous of. But gratefully, they supported me and I did a Kickstarter two months later. How did you survive in those days? Was it the sort of proverbial tins of beans? It sort of was, yeah. It was very early for Entrepreneur First. They didn't really have much infrastructure around them. I mean, didn't get any funding from them. It was the network and access to advisors, which was really useful. But I remember for our first three months, we had office space in London. But it was in a building in Cannon Street, so right in the heart of the city, which on paper sounded great. But it was a building that was basically professional squatters. So it was being reclaimed and there's some sort of loophole that you can pay 50p or some token bit of rent and work from the premises. But you weren't allowed to live. And we were on the top floor of 100 and however many with no elevator. And my desk on the first day was a plank of wood across my knees. And I remember seeing people come out of the showers occasionally with a bar of soap. So I think there probably was people in the building that were living there. But that was our first offices, me and an intern. How did you first make your bike lights? We found a partner in China, but we, you know, we'd never made anything before. So it was a very steep learning curve and, and going out there an awful lot. And I mean, they're all the ins and outs of a complicated supply chain. The first laser light has 109 components and multiple different suppliers from I think five different countries and it has to be fully waterproof and USB charge and it wasn't a simple product to start with and uh, it took longer than we hoped but we got there eventually and it was with a big business in Asia that we were working with so we had some help from them. Your core product at Blaze will be known by everyone in London because Transport for London use it on all their bikes for hire around the city. How does an organisation of two people get the attention of a big public sector organisation like that? There was a couple of years in between that. So there was a couple of years where we were shipping the consumer version, the light you can buy as a public cyclist. That was a very steep learning curve of 18 months and five trips to China and making the first product which we sold to customers. And that had been shipping around the world for about a year to about 65 different countries. And during that time, I had most of my friends in London would say, you know, I was thinking about you the other day. You know what you should really do? You should get your light on the Boris bikes. I think, oh, yeah, we'd love to. <laughs> we'd love to, because it was a dream. And we spoke to Transport for London TfL quite early on, but it's probably too early. And then actually, Serco, who operate the bikes, one day literally went on the website and got our number and gave us a call and said, we love the innovation. Will you come in for a meeting? You got the call from them. Why do you think they picked you? Because I think safety is known as the biggest challenge for people who cycle in the city, the biggest worry, and it's the biggest barrier for people who don't cycle. And then I think they could be seen to be doing to be innovative, to add value to the scheme and make the bikes safer and more visible is a good thing. And I think they'd seen the laser light and were interested to learn more. So in we went. Did you learn anything from Serco afterwards of why they might have thought you were a good bet? I think they liked the idea. I think they thought they would make the bicycles more visible on the street. I think it was as simple as that, but it, that was the kind of the first step that was ready to explore that. But then there came an awful lot of testing and proving. The device in the higher bikes in London is completely different. So the consumer one attaches to a rider's handlebars and they take it off the bike when they leave the bike. But the one for the higher bikes is built into the bike and it's powered by the dynamo has a light sensor and it comes in automatically when the bike is moving and in darkness. So everything other than the laser and the optics is completely different. And that we developed with Serco, with TFL, with their bike, because it had to be retrofit into the bike. 
And the first ones were actually made in the UK because we needed 250 for a trial and we wanted to work closely with a partner um, to make those. For them, it was very much working out how the product should work on their bikes. So we did some testing with the Metropolitan Police and they realised that when the bike stopped at traffic lights in front of a big vehicle, it would actually be helpful for the laser to start flashing because if you're in front of a vehicle, especially a high vehicle, they see the image on the ground when it's stationary flashing more easily than when it's just constant. And then as soon as the bike starts moving, it goes into a constant projection. And things like that, there was testing with the Metropolitan Police. And what TfL did, which I'm incredibly grateful for, is data. We wanted to prove the innovation is effective. We wanted data from day one. But it's very hard to prove whether a group of cyclists, A, avoided an accident and group B didn't. It's quite tricky. But they did 12 weeks of research with the Transport Research Laboratory, the guys who test seatbelts and helmets and put it through its paces. So they tested the various visibility of a bike with and without a laser light around buses, vans, cars, HGVs, lorries, in different light conditions, on different road surfaces. They interviewed bus drivers, they did the works, which was quite nerve-wracking because we obviously weren't allowed to be involved. And by the end of the 12 weeks, they submitted a 92-page document, which is basically golden. And it says I mean, things like a bike with a laser light in pitch black is more visible to a driver than a bike without in broad daylight. A laser light decreases the blind spot of a bus by... Over 25% and a van by nearly 30. So some amazing data points that could show that this does help cyclists be seen and we can use to show other people. Having a big customer like that is beneficial in all these ways. But it's also daunting for a tiny company to Definitely. have to match up to that. How did you feel? It's been great fun, I think, but it's been, it has been different people to please because the bikes in London are owned by Transport for London, operated by Serco and sponsored by Santander. So there's three very big companies, all of which need to be happy and all of which have got different motivations. One thing that helped was in the end, the lady who basically ran Cycle Hire within Serco was coming to a natural end of her time at Serco. She'd been there for a few years and she actually came and joined us. So we have her as a part of our team now and she's brilliant. She's absolutely fantastic. She brings the process and the maturity that I certainly haven't got and speaks Serco's language and we have her communicating back and forth on a daily basis, which certainly helps. She was happy to come and work for this little startup. How do you persuade someone like that? But yeah, we're very lucky, but we've got big things in the pipeline. We're a small team. We're now 12 of us in Shoreditch, but this is a big area of growth. We are creating technology for a very exciting space and I think she believed in that and she saw that and was willing to come and help build it with us. And you're now in New York as well in the higher cycles yep. there. It sounds like you get a big customer like TFL and it opens lots of doors. Is it as easy as that? No, it certainly isn't. There's bigger projects that come behind them and then there's more deliverables and the team is growing but not nearly as quick as it probably needs to. And we've got some ambitious projects on the go. We've been involved in the new bike for London so all of the bikes in London are being replaced from August and Serco won the bid for the new bike with ourselves and Pashley, which is an old school heritage British frame manufacturer, who are doing the frame. And then we, Blaze, are doing the technology. So we're doing the lights, the laser, but then also GPS, Bluetooth, sensors in the bike, the whole kind of tech of the brain within the bike. So that's a, an ambitious project, but very exciting. You started with crowdfunding, but the problem often for growing businesses is keeping the cash flow going especially as a hardware business, especially the working capital of tens if not hundreds of thousands of stock for components that will not be made into final products and then sold for many months later. In the early days, the partner that we were working with in Asia actually supported our working capital to some extent, which was fantastic. They believed in us and believed in what we're building, which is hard to do. 
There's actually an Irish business, PCH International, before they started working with startups. So that helped. And we've raised capital. So I've raised about six and a half million in total from friends and family in the very beginning, then Angels, Index Ventures, Pembroke BCT, the Branson family, and more recently, privately from individuals, which has been quite exciting. So these are a mixture of tech and other entrepreneur backers. Yeah, and private individuals, yeah. Have you any tips you've picked up? Because it's a very time-consuming process doing that and being able to grow the business while raising enough cash. It's the hardest thing to do. And it's believing in yourself, not in an arrogant way, but having the belief that people who want to be involved are lucky to be involved. Don't be suckered into believing that you're getting a great favour from them. By investing in your business, they're becoming a part of it and they're receiving a part of it. And if you really believe in what you're building and where you're going, then they're lucky to be. You've got the validation of Transport for London to get into markets like New York, but that's a very different market. How do you find the staff and people to support those overseas operations? That's very tricky, managing it from afar, a satellite team. We've been trying to look for somebody in New York. At the moment, it's lots of trips out, my co-founder and I, bouncing across to New York. At the moment, we can do most of it ourselves, but we will need to hire somebody over there. And that is very difficult. I haven't got the silver bullet or the answer to that yet because we're struggling with that ourselves. <laughs> Are so, you the technical brains, Emily? Well, I made the first prototype. I spent three weeks in the metal workshops in Brighton and made a horrifically ugly prototype, which we have in some box in the office, which people kind of occasionally bring out and laugh at. And then, no, I used a fantastic designer who made the first laser light, who's from the RCA, the tutor we still work with every day now. And he turned it into the beautiful product that it is today. And we've since hired a design team internally who are fantastic and they're doing the future products. And I love the product. I love being involved in the products, but I'm definitely not the technical whiz that they are. The innovation is in the technology. So the laser, it's what's called a direct diode, which is developed for Pico projectors in mobile phones on the understanding that every phone will one day have a projector like every phone has a camera. And they developed this amazing tiny laser technology, but then we're left without an application. And it was incredibly expensive when I first heard about it at university. It's about $300 a diode. But on the promise it would drop because the unit cost would come down once the development cost is paid back. And the price has been falling, but it was by far the most expensive component in our technology. But a very clever technology. So I think that came first. Do you notice any differences between the attitudes outside of the UK to new innovations like this? Yeah, when this is still a university project, I got a lot of press. It was picked up for some reason and people were talking about the innovation. It was just a concept at the time. Some of the cycling press was, yeah, but she hasn't thought about that. But yeah, but she hasn't made a prototype. Or yeah, but kind of quite, I think the British can be a bit slightly naysaying at times until proved otherwise. And then America, when we launched on the city bikes in New York, I first of all wasn't really expecting any pickup. And then there was an amazing response. And the kind of Americans were kind of like, oh my God, that's awesome. We got lasers. <laughs> it's kind of a terrible American accent, sorry. But there was amazing positive appreciation for the innovation, which I didn't really think about, but I certainly wasn't expecting. Is that helpful, though, to be too positive? And maybe do you learn more when people are critical and pointing out details that could be improved? There's definitely a risk of if somebody tells you they love something, but actually they don't. And I'd rather have the honest truth. I think you certainly hear that in China, that you get promised that everything's possible, but it's not always entirely possible, which is going to be dangerous. But no, I think by that point, the innovation had been proven and it was out in the world and people could see it and understand it and were behind it, which is great. What's been the darkest moment? There's been plenty of hairy moments. I mean, one would be very early on in the early days, there was only two companies in the world that made the laser technology that we're using. One was entirely unaffordable and the other was a Japanese business. And just before we pushed the button on manufacturing our first large batch of product, we were putting a PO in to order the lasers. They turned around and told us that actually, no, they were going to cost more than double what we'd previously been quoted all those months ago. And I probably freaked out. And 
It was also happened to be a Japanese holiday, so there's going to be nobody in the office that I was frantically trying to call and get hold of. And I don't think I slept a wink all that night and sent a million emails thinking on deaf ears because I thought there'd nobody be in the office. And somebody eventually picked it up and came back and said, we'll talk on Monday. And then we managed to have a conversation and got to an agreement where for this order we could keep that price, which is flying a little bit by the seat of our pants because we didn't know what would happen for the second order. But by that point, we had a backup plan. There was a second business, a German business. So the first batch would last us maybe 18 months or not quite that long. I mean, in that time, we could negotiate with the second business that we did have an application, we did have a future pipeline of orders and we should be somebody that they could scale with. And all of these things, when it comes to cost, it's economies of scale and the belief in that. So yeah, it was once we'd actually got the product out there, then they believed it was possible. You're doing a lot of your business across the world. Have you any tips on getting people you can talk to in these far-flung places? Exactly what you just said, having somebody on the ground that you can talk to in, in our language that can speak to them in their language. For example, we've got a guy called KK, who's our man in Hong Kong and China. He lives in Hong Kong, but he spends a lot of time in Shenzhen, and he is brilliant. I don't know how we could do it without him. I'm not sure how the man sleeps. He's in communication with the team, either on WhatsApp, Skype, Hangouts, phone, text, WeChat, pretty much every medium, every hour of the day. <laughs> it's endlessly solving problems for us. And how do you find someone like that? There's a thread in. It sounds awful that we're pitching people from other businesses, but he was actually working with the company in China that we were working with in the first place, and they were shutting down a lot of their China arm. And he approached us and said, "Was there a role for him?" And we, Absolutely. He'd been, we'd been working with him for a long time. And he was great. So very grateful for him. You're now all over London on the bikes. You're the same in New York. Does it become any easier? No. It's, well, that's not true. I have a hairy day where something is, is worrying me or there's something that's kind of, whether it's somebody on the team or it's a, a problem that we have to solve that day. And I come out the office later than the usual, still worrying and still thinking about it. And I get on a standard cycle, get on a Boris bike that has a laser in it. And I think, Hang on a minute. That's that's quite cool. That's that's, that's pretty cool, and it'll um, it'll cheer me up and get me home. <laughs> I put Emily's story to Nelson Phillips of London's Imperial College Business School. What does her experience tell us about how to win backing for a completely new and untested technology? The first thing you need, if you're going to convince anyone, investors, customers, even new employees, you need to have an explanation what this new company does in an easy way to understand what are we doing here. If you're doing something someone else does, we can just say, well, we're doing what they do, just doing it better. But if you're doing something really new, you need a good explanation. And she did that in an extremely effective way. She started out talking about herself, her own experience with biking, and then said what I think is the key part of her story. She decided she was going to solve the biggest problem facing people who ride bikes. And that suddenly gets everyone's attention. It's the biggest problem. It's for a big bunch of people. And it's suddenly everyone's like, oh, what is the biggest problem? And how are you going to solve it? Right? So that was a fantastic intro to a story that really would engage investors, customers, even suppliers. This is something really interesting, something new, and also then very easy to understand. She says, this makes the bike bigger. People can see it 20 feet ahead. There's a little bike on the road warning you there's a bike back there. It's a very simple concept. She did a great job of explaining why it was important and how it works. Blaze got a big break with a large initial customer transport for London. Part of that is by luck, but is there something that you can do to improve your luck? Actually, it's very interesting in the story. They contacted her. Her website was convincing enough and focused on a real problem that a whole bunch of people have, including Transport for London and their bikes. 
how do we reduce the danger to people riding these bikes? That's a great problem, and there's not many solutions to that. She has a new solution to that. That's why they found her website. That's why they contacted her. And that's part of why they took a risk on her. Part of it's just her own conviction and what a great product this is, which is a big part of being a successful entrepreneur. You have to be 100% sure about what you're doing and that it's right and that it's good. That's very convincing to people. And she had a product. It was being sold, so it's real. It was little, but it was there. So she could actually show it to them, and people were buying it. So the risk for them was relatively low. It was more about actually delivering enough of the product rather than does this thing work, because they knew it worked. It's interesting if you look at the Blaze website. They've done a great job of appealing to people who bike. It's really organized around the experience of biking and then this problem of safety. So you love biking but you know you're in danger in some situations, our product will help you with that. So they're engaging with this community, but providing a very clear solution to a real problem. And I think the biggest reason why entrepreneurs fail is that they're solving a non-problem. I see lots of business plans and talk to lots of entrepreneurs. They have a product, they have a service, they're clear on what it is, but it's like, how big of a problem are you solving and how many people have this problem? And often that's where their whole idea for their business falls down. I asked Emily what advice she'd offer to other budding entrepreneurs. Get on with it. If people are thinking of starting something or do something, I I spent my first year slightly terrified and wondering if I was doing things the right way. Who can I ask that's going to tell me if this is the right way or not? And actually you learn so much more by doing than thinking or worrying about doing. And there is never a right way. There's many, many ways to do things and we will learn much more by trying. Next week, we talk to a serial entrepreneur who helped found several successful businesses on the back of an earlier failure. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.